0: the harvard on china podcast at the fairbank center for chinese studies the fairbank center is a world leading center on china at harvard university our guest today on the harvard on china podcast is new york times journalist mike forsyth otherwise known by his twitter handle at peking mike mike is well known for his detailed reports on the links between money and politics in china And with the approaching 19th Party Congress focusing attention on a new Politburo Standing Committee, money, politics and corruption are currently centre stage in Beijing. I'm James Evans at Harvard's Fairbank Centre for Chinese Studies, and I started by asking Mike Forsyth about what the Party Congress is and what outcomes we can expect to see from it.
1: There's politics in China, just like there's politics in the United States, except it's very different. Every five years, uh, the Communist Party uh, convenes a big meeting of more than 2,000 delegates uh, from around the country to um, select a new Central Committee, um, which is, uh, you know, several hundred of you know the top officials. And from that Central Committee is drawn the real rulers of China, the Politburo, about 25 uh, people, and then from there is. The very elite of China, the Politburo Standing Committee, uh, is uh, is chosen. Right now, that's seven people. It was nine people uh, five years ago. So this is the political season. There's not an election so much as there's horse trading to figure out who is going to be uh, in the next committee. Um, There's generally um, age limits, um, although there's a little bit of ambiguity there now. But it does look like at least five, or at least four, if not five of the current members of the uh, Politburo Standing Committee are going to have to retire. They're just old. Uh, And so there's a lot of new people that are going to come in. People are going to be looking at some of those people as the future, you know, top one or two leaders in China, the future um, uh, president, uh, you know, general secretary of the Communist Party. Uh, So this is is China's political season. Uh, The last one was in 2012, uh, and it was a... Real rip roaring um, experience, and uh, 2017 uh, is not going to be quite the same because Xi Jinping will be continuing uh, on as the general secretary for another five-year term. But it's the people underneath him and the other people in the Standing Committee uh, that, that are going to be changing. Um, and so, you know, all eyes are on politics in China now to see who 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 comes out. Uh, you know, in the top echelons of the party.
0: And so a lot of talk is about Xi Jinping filling the product. Pearl- with his guys. Mm -hmm. Can we expect to see that in this party congress as well? We
1: we will definitely see that. Uh, That's certainly high on his agenda. And so, you know, we did see overnight uh, the the party secretary for Zhejiang province, which is where Xi Jinping was also the party secretary for for, uh, many years, uh, about uh, a little over a decade ago. And he uh, looks like he may be promoted to uh, one of the Politburo spots. So he is trying to get more of his people in um, and weed out some of the people who may not have personal or historical ties to him. And so this seems to be,
0: uh, there's a a recent book on uh, Xi Jinping talking about how his personal ties are very efficacious and getting certain individuals into high-ranking positions. Do Xi Jinping's personal ties overrule certain other more logical
1: promotions that we might see otherwise? I don't know. You know, there's obviously other power centers in the Politburo um, as well. Um, you know, is a, is a Wang Qishan, you know, so Wang Qishan is head of the anti-corruption campaign. He's ostensibly number six in rank, you know, in the, in the Politburo. But, you know, many people would place him as number two in real power. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's a, a, a man of incredible uh, reputation for incredible competence and problem solving ability. So, you know, would... Xi Jinping be able to just get anybody he wants through, or try to get anybody he wants through, or would he have to have some sort of consensus with people like Wang Qishan? Uh, and so, you know, we're going to have to see how that that plays out. Certainly some people that are, you know, clearly identifiable as loyal to Xi Jinping, you know, are going to are going to get in at least the Politburo, if not the Standing Committee. Um, you know, that's, that's certain. But uh, the question is how many and how much influence, you know, Maybe Wang Qishan would have, um, how much influence, or vestiges of influence, you know, over people who may owe their loyalties to, you know, past, you know, leaders like Jiang Zemin. Um, you know, I'm not a big person for this whole factionalism thing. I try to shy, shy away from it, but, you know, certainly there are other interest groups and loyalties, you know, in, in the party. Rod McFarquhar, our professor here at the Fairbanks Center, uh, it says that
0: Wang Qishan is going to be a, a real key person to watch in this party congress mm-hmm. that is he's theoretically supposed to be coming near to retirement mm-hmm. But Professor McFarquhar argues that if Wang Qishan is not asked to retire and asked to stay on as the head of this uh, anti-corruption campaign that Xi Jinping is running That indicates that Xi Jinping may be looking to extend his tenure as a president. Mm-hmm. Do you buy into that
1: argument? I just don't know. You know, I mean, uh, it's hard to get really good information um, from China now, from reliable people. I think there is enough reporting, and I think the the New York Times has certainly reported, and my colleague Chris Buckley has, that uh, there does seem to be uh, a a lot of people who think that Wang will stay on. Um, Whether you can make the logical leap that that implies that Xi Jinping will stay on after 10 years um, is another question entirely. And... uh, you know, of course, Xi Jinping at that point um, is going to be uh, close to seventy years old himself. Um, you know, by that time, and uh, you know, I don't know how healthy he is. Um, and but but you know, that's a long ways away. That's you know, another um, more than five years away that we are going to get to that point with the twentieth Party Congress. Yeah. So,
0: as head of the anti-corruption campaign, um, this is obviously a really big almost mass campaign that has been rolled out across China in the last few years by Xi Jinping um, and very much involves topics of money and politics. Um, You've written on this quite extensively for the New York Times. Mm -hmm. How did you get interested in covering this topic?
1: Um, So I um, was once a campaign finance reporter in Washington uh, in a a prior life. Uh, And so I covered money and politics in Washington. Um, and then I went back to Beijing for my second time there, and uh, I started doing some stories. And this was when I was at Bloomberg News about the wealth of the members of the National People's Congress. Um, and it turned out um, that, you know, uh, the richest person in the U.S. Congress would be the 80th richest person about in the National People's Congress. Um, you know, pretty incredible, um, and, it, and it said so much about China. So I kind of had that on the on the on the brain. Um, I liked doing those stories, but there's really it was very limited. Um, to do a story every year about the wealth of the National People's Congress and it felt like Groundhog Day, you were doing the same story every year. Then all of a sudden, uh, early February 2012, Chinese politics changed um, for all of us, I think forever and altered our lives completely um, when a guy um, named Wang Lijun uh, decided to try to defect to the United States um, in a consulate uh, in Sichuan, in Chengdu. And all of a sudden, Chinese politics got very, very interesting, and this was in the run-up to the last party congress in 2012. And we all knew about this because we all read about it in the Wall Street Journal. And I was at Bloomberg, and we and we were getting um, really beat in this amazing story. We changed the story. Um, and instead of just looking at uh, Bo Xilai, this guy who, was, who fell that year, uh, we started uh, shifting it, uh, and it started with Bo's family, Um, but started looking at the assets of other families, um, encouraged by people like Rod McFarquhar to do that. Um, And much to our surprise at Bloomberg, um, after we started building out some family trees um, and started doing some Googling, um, it it quickly dawned on us that probably the most interesting story to do would be on Xi Jinping's family. Once you start doing these stories, it's hard to go back. And they're just so exciting. Uh, at Bloomberg, you know, we, we, we have a, a tendency, we had a tendency there to like to look at stock prospectuses, bond prospectuses, um, corporate documents. And this is just the kind of thing you need to do in order to put these stories together. Um, and then of course, Dave Barboza at the New York times later that year did the, you know, the masterful, you know, story on Wen Xiaobo's family. Uh, and, uh, I joined him at the times about a year after that. And we just kept doing these stories, um i uh I think it's very they're very important to do i I love doing them um, and they're like a treasure hunt in some ways. They're exciting. Um, no one else is doing them. Uh, and so we we do feel you know that it's important um, as well that we have a, a contribution to make to the Chinese because obviously Chinese journalists cannot do this kind of reporting um, unless the official is officially designated as a bad guy like Zhou Yong Kang. The former security chief, for example, or lately, um, you know, this, this guy, Guo Wengui.
0: And to, to pick you up on that, what do you see as the role of a foreign correspondent in China? Because you're in a very unusual situation where because you're writing in English, your primary audience is in America or in mm-hmm. the English speaking world. But obviously you're in China reporting from the coalface and you do have this access that a Chinese
1: journalist might not have. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, I think the role of the foreign correspondent is changing a lot. I mean, it it depends. Um, There's still a huge, huge appetite uh, for the. Um, brilliant stories that describe you know China that capture it in a moment. Um, last night uh, my colleague in Beijing Javier Hernandez wrote this amazing story I thought about uh, uh, surveillance cameras in schools you know in China and these things capture the spirit of the country. Um, you know, little vignettes like that, or descriptions of you know pollution, struggles of ordinary people—all these things are the you know the essential role of a foreign correspondent. I'm kind of a freak. I like doing these arcane follow-the-money stories, and the audience is very different for those because we're doing you know we're breaking news in China, where we're taking the role in many in many respects of a Chinese journalist because we're substituting in. But still, we have to make those stories relevant for the global reader. Um, And so um, that's, you know, we're not going to be able to write a lot about what happened five years ago anymore. You know, I would love to write the definitive story about the Li Changchun family corruption. But it's not going to happen because there's no way I could sell that to an editor in the United States, and and you know, and, and there's no way in the United States in their right mind would take that. Um, so um, I think that's a big role for academics to do now. Um, people writing their master's theses. There's so much more to discover, um, you know, about the families of China. So um, if we are to do stories um, about, you know, that for this global audience, there there generally has to be you know, something that makes it appealing globally, you know, whether it's just a stunning amount of money, whether the company, you know, if you're writing about a company or businessman or something, if they are invested in the United States, doing big deals in the United States, that makes it much more relevant. Um, So you always have to think of that. And so um, while I would love to write, you know, these arcane stories sometimes about leaders who are already retired, um, it's hard. Um, And so you do have to both sell it to, you have to sell it to an international audience, but you know, you're still writing in many ways for a domestic audience as well.
0: You mentioned that a lot of your reporting is kind of in lieu of what an ordinary Chinese journalist would be expected to do were China not yes. in the current situation yes. it is. How do you see Chinese journalists reacting to, say, an article that you write, or indeed? what's going on in the West at the moment? What, what's the view from China?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a real mix. Um, and uh, there are certainly Chinese journalists who are not big, uh, they don't really appreciate what we do. Um, I, I think it's very, you know, humbling. I mean, we can get a little bit excited at, at the times about these stories, but if we really are honest with ourselves, um, if a Chinese journalist, I think, had the freedom to do these stories, um, there are just so many just ridiculously brilliant young people in China now who really care about their country. And I think they would run circles around us with these stories as well they should. It's their country you know, so in many ways, we, I feel like we have blinders. Um, I do get, you know, we do get appreciated, you know, by Chinese journalists. I'm, I just feel for them because I feel like that, you know, these are stories that in many ways that they should be, you know, writing. Um, you know, when it does involve the United States, um, you know, uh, you know a, com- a company like Anbang or Wanda, you know, that's certainly, you know, something we should be doing a lot of as well. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's a, it's a weird situation to be in.
0: And speaking of Anbang and Wanda, yeah. um, so you've written a lot recently about Chinese companies in America, yeah, um, and especially the links between Jared Kushner yeah. and his yeah. family and yeah. some Chinese business deals. So you just published an article recently about um, the Kushner family with a $400 million deal on 66 Fifth Avenue in New yeah. York. How do you start piecing together that kind of story?
1: Yeah. So I didn't do, um, I will say in all, you know, um, frankness, that the initial scoop about the Kushner's deal with 666 Fifth Avenue actually came from my colleagues in New York, and they got this through shoe leather reporting, you know, just legendary reporting. Um, but then, you know, after that, um, you know, I did some stories on this as that, that deal developed and then as it collapsed... Um and so um it was difficult to report um It is fascinating to see the dynamics of what we 've seen in China with the princelings and the family relations play out in the united states and but also to the, to america's credit I think um it doesn't quite work it doesn't appear to i mean this, these are early days, but it doesn't appear to work the same in the United States because in China, at least in the past, you know, an association with a princeling um, was something that any businessman wanted to have. Uh, you want to team up with a princeling. Um, it's a way to wealth. It's a way to status. Um, in America, at least, it may be the case that um, you know a U.S. businessman uh, or a woman executive um, teaming up with a politically connected princeling in America like Jared Kushner is not necessarily something they want to do because the American press is going to be all over it like white on rice and we are not going to let go and it's some of these companies are publicly listed Um, these people have reputations and so if they are dragged through the mud and said you know look you know company x or company v in this case um, you know is associated with this deal with this dodgy Chinese company and I think it's safe to say that Anbang, it's got a remarkably opaque shareholding structure. I'll say that. Um, And, uh, you know, that this could have reputational effects on um, other Americans. So the dynamic may be working a little bit differently in the United States in a very good way that, you know, associating yourself with a princeling may not be the best idea and it may have bad effects. So, you know, it's, uh, it's fascinating to see this develop. Professor William Kirby here
0: talks a lot about growing Chinese investment, especially in Manhattan. Yeah. So the Waldorf Astoria is now Chinese-owned. It's owned. Anbang, yeah. Um, uh, the Trump Tower, the biggest tenant, is ICBC, Yeah. Um, a Chinese bank. Do you think that the sheer amount of money coming into America from China is going to start
1: affecting the U.S.-China relationship? Um, I mean, yes. And, I mean, and now we're really at the, the front edge of journalism. You know, this is something we want to document. This is something we want to write about, um, if, if, if that's the case. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, this is a very, very important area for journalists to look at, whether, um, you know, the moneyed class in the United States uh, that uh, has close business ties with China uh, are, are, have Trump's ear or Jared Kushner's ear and whether they're influencing, if that's influencing Chinese policy. And of course, sometimes their influence may not be such a bad thing, um, you know, and from a policy perspective, depending on your point of view. Um, but the fact is that if it's if it's money driving that, if it's economic interest driving that, you know, whatever your feelings about that, that needs to be documented. It needs to be written about. Um, and so, uh, you know, how, how do these people... Um, you know how do the Blackstones of the world you know uh you know the the stephen schwarzman's of the world you know how are how are they influencing washington um and and how are they um also in turn uh passing back information or influencing china as well so yeah definitely a huge area for journalists to look at very carefully yeah
0: Yeah, and something that you've covered recently is almost the flip side of that Mm -hmm. um which is guo Gui and his his moving to America. Yeah. He's a Chinese billionaire. Um, he's now sort of pulled a Russian oligarch and decided that he is going to be a critic of the anti-corruption campaign and Xi thing. Mm-hmm. So he's a club member in Mar-a-Lago. Yes, yes. Which, of all places to
1: choose to be affiliated in America, that
0: cannot be a coincidence.
1: Um. Yeah, although, you know, sometimes there's less than me, see I. I think he's been a member for a little while. Um, he may have been a member since before Trump's, you know, was... Certainly, well before Trump was president, uh, you know, when he was a candidate, um, a lot of his people, you know, the people he would want to associate with, uh, have houses down in Palm Beach. Um, you know, Steven Schwarzman' name will keep coming up. Um, you know, John Thornton. All these people, you know, all these big, huge titans of American business, you know, they compete against each other for their really ridiculously audacious um mansions, um in um in Palm Beach. Um interesting enough, Guanggui actually has better taste in some in some bizarre ways than a lot of these people do. So when he goes down to Mar-a-Lago, um he stays at a house um on Sixty Blossom Way, which is extremely tasteful. At least he was there last and it, you know, it's this Indonesian motif mansion that is just gorgeous and tasteful, decorated with Asian art. It's been written up in architectural digest. Um, that's kind of apropos of nothing. Uh, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's just, it's, it, you know, is a F- Miles Quack, whatever you want to call him, is a, is a very fascinating person. And, uh, um, you know, the first tweeting Chinese billionaire dissident, you know, we've ever had. That's a title. Yeah. Um, and
0: so a lot of people will know this man because recently he had a quite public interview with voice of america that was cut off mm-hmm. in the chinese recording of it yeah um, perhaps you can comment on that
1: yeah so i mean reporters are you know are human beings and we sometimes jump to conclusions uh i was watching the interview uh with miles quack with guo and guay on voice of america and and about at the um 75 minute point it just immediately cut off the anchors the voa anchors had to apologize i'm sorry we're gonna to have to cut this short and so immediately um as a reporter, you're like, "Well, what happened here? Um, you know, was there pressure from the White House to cut this off? Was there pressure from China to cut it off? Um, and, and the reality, um, when I started doing some reporting um, appears to be a, a little less uh, exciting. Um, and that's often the case. Um, and so in this case, um, it, it looks like uh, the management of Voice of America had um, told the Chinese service that you really should only keep this guy on the air for an hour. Um, He's throwing out so many unsupported allegations against senior Chinese leaders uh, that, um, you know, give him an hour, but after that, go to tape, and what he says, we can try to follow up, try to do some reporting on. Um, And it doesn't look like that the Chinese news service went along with that, uh, or there was some miscommunication, as I wrote in my story, and the the broadcast continued for 15 minutes, at which point, um, you know, they were told to to cut it off. Um, I think, journalistically, um, there's probably a lot of very good reasons for limiting Guo Wengui to one hour um, of free time to just throw out as much pasta on the wall as he can. And so, um, you know, giving him three hours on a you know network as prestigious as voice of america uh, as respected um you know maybe that is a little excessive so i can certainly understand you know voa senior management and they are led by you know just a a legendary journalist amanda bennett uh, who used to be my boss Um, you know, at at Bloomberg, um, and she was the the reporter who shepherded through the story at Bloomberg on Xi Jinping's family wealth. So she's very used to this. Now, of course, VOA did get a lot of pressure from the Chinese um, to not broadcast this. Uh, They got it in Beijing. Uh, Their reporter in Beijing was called in. Uh, They got it in Washington. Uh, Lots of calls. Nevertheless, they persisted, and they did it. They aired this, you know, and that speaks a lot to them. But they also did it, I think, in an adult way by only limiting it to an hour. Unfortunately, there was clearly some dissension there and it got a little messy. Um, But I think that's I'm pretty sure that's the story. And, uh, you know, as exciting as it would be if there were White House interference and Chinese interference in this, um, it doesn't appear like that that's the case in here. Perhaps there's a slightly more mundane explanation in
0: that case. You know,
1: unfortunately, sometimes the mundane is the the the. The accurate, you know, the truth, yeah. And so, I, I guess the sort of conclusion of our podcast is
0: not only that sometimes mundane things happen in China, but money and politics happens all
1: over the place. Money and politics does happen all over the place, but how people react to it and how people can report it is very, very different. Right, folks. I thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the Harvard on China podcast at the Fairbanks Centre for Chinese Studies. To listen to more interviews from leading scholars of China, check out the Harvard on China playlist at Harvard University's SoundCloud page.